0: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and today we have a special guest, Adam Harris, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of The State Must Provide Why America's Colleges Have Always Been Unequal and How to Set Them Right. Before joining The Atlantic in 2018, Adam was a reporter for the Chronicle for Higher Education or of Higher Education, covering federal higher education policy and HBCUs. At The Atlantic, he writes about politics and education, two of my very favorite topics. Adam, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I've been reading reading your stuff for a long time, and and there are two articles you've published in the past month that are just really fascinating. One about how reconstruction shaped American schools, and the other about uh, chronic absenteeism in American schools since the pandemic began. Let's start with that second article. You wrote this piece called Where Are All the Missing Students? Uh, And the sort of subtitle is schools are struggling with abnormally high rates of absenteeism since the pandemic began. You wrote this one month ago. Tell me what's going on. What are the trends uh, since the start of the pandemic?
1: Yeah. So since the pandemic began, right, teachers, um, administrators for a long time, as you probably know, uh, have been worried about um, absenteeism, right? Students missing class in part because once folks really started digging into how absenteeism affects students, right? It's not necessarily, oh, you missed 20 days and uh, everything starts to slide. No, it's it's after you miss the first day, after you miss the second day, right? You start to see a decline in a student's progress. And so really been thinking about ways to um, keep students in class engaged with the coursework. And since the pandemic began, um, what researchers began noticing, administrators began noticing, was that, you know, some of those students who went to virtual learning um, just didn't end up returning to class. Or, you know, some of those kids in younger grades, right, in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, parents began to think of those grades as an extension of daycare. And so they were more fine with, with students missing class. And and what we've seen is a sort of explosion of absenteeism over the last several years where Some of those students from the groups that folks were already most concerned about have been having rates of absenteeism at 20, 30, 40 percent of what we saw before the pandemic began.
0: And to quote from your article, according to an analysis from Stanford economist Thomas D., there was a 91 percent increase in the number of students who became chronically absent, missing more than 10 percent of school days in a year whether excused or unexcused, between 2018-19 and 2021-2022 school years, which amounts to 6.5 million students. And you alluded to this before, but what do we know about what it, missing 10 days,
1: what does that mean in the life of a student? Missing 10 days, um, you know, across the course of a year just typically means that a student, as I was kind of mentioning before, right? If, If you miss one day, it'll affect you in the same way as it uh, does on the 10th day that you miss. So so you will start to see a a recession in a student's engagement with the work and their understanding and mastery of the work. And so in, in particular for communities that folks are already concerned about, especially in this kind of moment where test scores and math and reading and civics, you know, history are down um, and and we're sort of dealing with this quote-unquote learning loss from the pandemic or or days missed from the pandemic, it makes it all the harder to catch students up when we are also dealing with the fact that they are not necessarily in in seats, right? Um, Getting students in seats is the first part to to catching them up, and, and we're just having a really difficult time with it right now across the country.
0: And, you know, you end your piece by talking about efforts to try to solve this. What has been tried and what data, if anything, do we know about the effectiveness of any of these interventions?
1: Yeah. So there are a couple of different interventions. Um, research has shown there are a few things you can do, right, such as, you know, offering free school lunches um, or free school breakfasts this is one way to enhance attendance. And in, in New York, they piloted a program or they did some research where effectively they looked at students who received free breakfast. Um, looked at students who didn't receive free, free breakfast in ga- uh, grades, um, kindergarten through, through third grade. And those students who received that free meal um, were, you know, less likely to, to miss school, you know, at a rate somewhere around 5%. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a small intervention, but it's something that, that proved effective because it takes that one additional stressor away in the morning for for parents. Other interventions are things like the availability of school buses um, and and reasonable transportation to schools. And in a moment when we have bus driver shortages, um, that can be a very difficult, difficult thing. Another intervention that proved effective in New York where, you know, the idea of community schools, right, a place where it wasn't just about getting your, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also providing some of those medical services, right? Um, If there's a pool at the school, perhaps that can serve as a community pool. Not only the students can get medical services at the schools, but the parents and adults can get medical services at the school. Sort of creating a a hub that folks can go to. Now, it should be clear that they are modest effects of, of these interventions. And perhaps one of the best ways to to increase school attendance, and, and one of the clearest links is is that with poverty, right? Um, if you could eradicate uh, child poverty, then there's uh, the chance that you would um, de- significantly decrease uh, absenteeism, but we've already seen some of the ways that effective tools for reducing child poverty uh, have been eliminated at a congressional level.
0: Yeah, I, I think some of it's also societal sort of expectations. You know, I think about it like in my neighborhood, just this morning, I think it was either this morning or yesterday. I I was working out of a coffee shop, getting some work done. And typically, it's right near a school, so students come in and they they're loud and like they, they always cause trouble. So I'm always I know in my head exactly when they are supposed to leave, and they didn't leave. It was either today or yesterday, and I I asked the kid. I was like, "Hey, like, what are you what are you doing here still?" And they gave some explanation, but I was like. But part of me waited longer than I normally would because I was like, ah, I'm like, I think throughout the pandemic, there's been so much like changes to schedules and school models and when you see kids that like seeing a kid walking around in the middle of the school day is a less abnormal occurrence than it used to be, if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, it really does. I I, I think, you know, too, in in my neighborhood, uh, right? I've seen kids that are just sort of walking around. Some of them, of course, are homeschooled. We saw a, a significant amount of folks switch. Um, during during the pandemic but not as many as you as you know to explain the 6.5 million student increase in absenteeism um and so i think that they' there you know some schools are looking at communication as a as a good way um to enhance community involvement parent involvement to say that you know listen your kid has missed one day of school um we're gonna send a letter to your house to say that hey this is how important it is that your child is in school every day just sort of keeping that constant contact because there are a lot of folks who became almost disillusioned um, or, or maybe skeptical of schooling during the pandemic. Um, and it's sort of rebuilding that trust um, is incredibly important. and can go a long way in terms of getting students back into classrooms.
0: Let's turn the clock back all the way back to the founding of this republic, so even before Reconstruction. So you wrote this article called How Reconstruction Created American Public Education. And at one point in the article, you, I think, do a service in explaining to people that at the founding of this republic, so first few decades of this republic, the education system was dramatically different than I think people would realize. Like Getting an education, whether it's K-12 or higher education, was a Rare privilege for most people in this country. Um, explain a little bit of, just for our audience, like what that looked like around the country in the, those first few decades before we even get to reconstruction.
1: Yeah. So, so early on um, in the sort of American project, um, as you mentioned, right, having an education was a a privilege reserved for the sort of elite few, right? Folks would send their kids to private schools or, or subscription schools where you only, Your student would attend the amount of school that you could afford to send them to, Um, but the idea of public schooling, even though uh, it was sort of bounced around among the elites, it never really um, trickled down to the to the masses, right? And so you you really had this project into the 1800s, the middle of the 1800s, where there was a it wasn't until there was a critical mass. Um, that was effectively saying we need a way to educate the population. You know, despite the fact that, as I mentioned, the founding fathers, um, I, I often you know think about those early speeches that George Washington was giving, um, both in his first address and his last address before Congress. He talks about the importance of education in building a citizenry. Right? If you want to build good citizens, then there was nothing that better deserved the patronage of Congress than than education. But it's not until, you know, you get to the 1840s with, with Horace Mann that you really get the sort of proselytizing about um, a public education um, and the, the the real thinking about how it could be beneficial for society.
0: Yeah, tell us a little about Horace Mann and Yellow Springs, Ohio, which well before Dave Chappelle was a outsized importance in the national consciousness uh, with Antioch College. What was going on over there and why... Why is Horace Mann viewed as this kind of central figure in American public education?
1: Yeah, so so Horace Mann is is really kind of known as the father of of American public education because he was really one of the first major figures that was out there, you know, um, advocating for, in some ways, like the Christianizing influence of public education, but really the sort of public benefits of of education um, and and how it helped build a citizenry, and so. Horseman becomes the president of, of Antioch College. He's the first president of Antioch College, which is, you know, this, this rather progressive institution, right? It's one of the first in the, it's the first in the nation to have a um, woman serve on its faculty as a full-time member as equal to um, her male colleagues. And, and effectively he is hoping to build a class of, of students who are active participants in doing good, right? And, and, and And when I say doing good, that's not just, oh, well, you know, I'm going to give a couple of dollars here, give it a couple of dollars there. Um, He says, you know, that that you should. um,
0: I can read the quote for you. I think it's like in your article. Yeah. So he says, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. And it seems like one of, at least one of those students that you write about (laughs) took him literally. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, Mary Bryce. Uh, she was a student of his at, at Antioch College, and she she goes down from Yellow Springs, Ohio, to New Orleans, Louisiana. And um, her, her mission is effectively, you know, there were schools in New Orleans that had this rich history of parochial schools. There were schools to teach students from wealthy families, wealthy white families. There were students, some schools... To teach, you know, wealthy uh, the sort of wealthy class of of free blacks, but but there weren't places to teach the recently enslaved, the poor um, black folks in, in New Orleans, and that was her mission, right? She wanted to provide education to those who had been shut out of of the rest of education, and uh, you know, out of out of her her push down there. New Orleans, of course, is the first city that's captured um, by Union troops uh, during during the Civil War. And they take all of these little schools like those that were founded by Mary Bryce, um, and there's this, this Union government that they set up, uh, the Department of the Gulf, and effectively they create a board of schools, um, you know, the first sort of local school board that is a, a sort of centralizing uh, entity for all of these schools. They help provide fuel um, for the fires. They um, help provide some supplies for the teachers in order to for them to continue their work. And and that project, that initial project, sort of grows, right? You know, once the federal government moves towards the creation of what is known as the Freedmen's Bureau, right? This this entity that is helping to reconstruct the nation after the civil war um they look towards places like new orleans as a model of okay what if we became a central entity uh, that provided some of those additional resources to these local folks like mary bryce to provide education to those students uh, who who were trying to bring into citizenship
0: and paint for us this sort of dual track for you know, momentum for public education happening in this country in the North versus the South. So I'm not sure of the years, but Horace Mann comes to have a huge influence over the spread starting in the Northeast of what were called the common schools, like the sort yes. of precursor. I mean, basically the the genesis of the public education system. And that really takes root in the Northeast. It does. But it seems like in the South, there's a, a bit of a, a parallel, but but different history going on.
1: There is so so Horace Mann's initial idea, as you mentioned, right? It, it starts in the Northeast. It starts to move towards the West, um, but it, in the South, there's there's more antagonism towards the idea of common schools. Uh, you know, you you have people saying that, well, you know, providing people with education that is that is a private good. That is, if you want to go and get an education, that should be on you. The community shouldn't be funding this this additional um, support. But also, you know, at a at a more base level. If you were thinking about education for enslaved folks, um, for sort of formerly enslaved folks, it was, you know, going back to the 1740s, you had explicit laws on the books, these slave codes that barred, you know, Black folks from learning how to read. You move into the 1800s, you have uh, Gabriel's revolt, you have Nat Turner's rebellion, and they start banning Black people from learning how to read in part because they didn't want them reading the Bible. Because of the the liberating influences that that might have, and so there was a, there was a sort of antagonism towards education for black people, but also for some of the lower class white folks um, in the South, uh, because you sort of think about the planter classes, um, their need for workers didn't only extend to the black population in the South, and so this sort of antagonism towards education really um, uh, was fomented and cemented down there. And and kind of after Reconstruction begins, there remains, even as they start to build out this network of schools under the Freedmen's Bureau, there remains that antagonism in part because it's coming from the federal government, right? If you were looking at the, the ways that they were trying to maintain control of the population in the South, any federal money, any federal oversight that was coming down towards the region, it just meant that they were not able to subdue the population in the way that they they might have liked. And as soon as Reconstruction ended, you saw what the the ultimate effect was.
0: And you mentioned, you know, in terms of federal policy, this act called the Morrill Act, yes, which because of the unique history of New Orleans being the first place the Union Army took. That the Morrill Act had a sort of profound impact on New Orleans relative to other places in the South.
1: Yes, yes, it did. And, and so the Morrill Act um, was effectively, right, in, in 1862, there was a bill that passed in Congress. They'd been working on this for, for several years, um, but it effectively, it was a bill that gave states land, which they were able to sell in order to fund a, a university um, and Iowa State was, or Iowa was the first one to accept this land grant um, and, and, and formed Iowa State University. But Southern states weren't uh, allowed to accept this grant because of their, uh, you know, of their direction, right. Of when they left the Union, they they were barred from from some of those funds, and so they had to introduce new constitutions, to, you know, ratify the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth amendments, in order to to ultimately have access to to some of these funds. And kind of that act combined with the Freedmen's Bureau, you, you start to get the genesis of this public education infrastructure um, that we see today. And that early infrastructure was really interesting um, because there were attempts to make it equal, um, right? It's particularly with, with the Morrill Act. You know, I think of places like Alcorn State University um, in Mississippi, which, you know, it was founded in 1871. Uh, so uh, not long after Reconstruction began. Um, and under that Reconstruction legislature in Mississippi, it was given a $50,000 appropriation for uh, at least a decade in order to, to you know educate Black students. And as the so-called redeemers began to sweep in, this becomes an interesting portraiture of, of the ways that um, Reconstruction was undone. You know, f- five years later, they reduced that appropriation to $15,000, a year um, a year after that they reduced that appropriation again and now it's five thousand five hundred dollars a year meanwhile you have the University of Mississippi which is you know exclusively for white students at this point um, where the faculty are literally saying that they would rather resign in the college closed than to educate a black student and so you start to see the the, the fissures and the divisions in the funding for higher education, but also that funding for K through 12 in public education begin to to show.
0: Yeah, and you, you talk about Major General Otis Howard, who was the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau during a critical period of time. He, he helped found Fisk University, which is right down the street from the first school I started in Hampton and Howard named after himself. And you know, there's a lot of momentum at a certain period of time and then comes the backlash. Talk a bit about this backlash that that these various efforts to push public education faced.
1: Yeah, so you know, it, it happened. It happened in Mississippi. It happened in North Carolina. Kind of across the board. One of the sort of central facts of of American history is that these moments of intense pro- uh, progress are always met by moments of, of harsh backlash. So we saw it in Reconstruction um, in North Carolina uh, as you get the. Redemption legislature coming in, right? They effectively reduced, they effectively closed um, the University of North Carolina for four years um, uh, because they thought it was becoming uh, too much of a a sort of equalizing, sort of liberalizing influence in the state. And Howard, in, uh, you know, General Howard in particular, began to face a backlash of his own, right? People, uh, there began, there grew out a whole school of analysis and thought that tried to paint the Bureau as this intimately uh, corrupt organization that was laundering funds that wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing. When in reality, the fact that they were sort of hamstrung by a tight budget, um, the fact that Southerners had grown increasingly hostile to their activities, including the fact that they were educating Black people, educating um, some of the lower-class whites, they were increasingly hostile to those activities and so that the sort of broader lens and the analysis that grew out of this era where they say that the, the freeman's bureau was corrupt um was actually just a response to the work that they were doing in order to build this project that that began uh in the 1700s right this idea of making this a, a more perfect union
0: yeah and so you know in as you mentioned like there were the critiques and all that and then there was the burning of buildings and yes. all of that and then You know, you had certain legislative changes, like you talk about the Louisiana Constitutional Convention in 1867, when they first guarantee a integrated public school system. And then over time, Louisiana, like many other states, begins to restrict the franchise. And at a certain point, you go from these staggering numbers, right? You have in 1888, uh, you have 127,000 plus black voters, and then by 1910 you have 730. So you restrict the franchise, and then as the franchise is being restricted, how has public policy changed in you know in light of that lack of representation?
1: Yeah. So effectively, right? I, I think that there's often this thought that we go from slavery to the Civil War directly to Jim Crow. Um, but as you mentioned, right, there was this period, and you know, of Reconstruction into even you know, the late 1800s, um, where y- you had, you know, Black people voting in the South. You had um, representation to a point in the South, right? At, at one point during Reconstruction, you have more than 2,000 people, uh, Black folks, holding elected office across the South. But as you move into the, the sort of 18, late 1880s, 1890s, um, you start to get uh, Supreme Court decisions like Plessy v. Ferguson, um, you start to get new constitutions written in southern states that fully bar black people um, through nominally colorblind language, um, right? The, the grandfather clauses, the poll taxes. Um, so, so this sort of nominally colorblind language that effectively just completely overhauls the sort of public policy apparatus to the point where anything that was was seen as progress, where whether it was you know, equitable funding for for schools for Black students and white students that would be restricted to where in Louis, in New Orleans, for example, um, they severely restricted the amount of classes, the the types of books that that students had access to. They started closing schools um, in Kentucky. I, I often think about in 1904. Right, was the year that Kentucky passed its segregation law. It was in part thanks to Berea College, um, but there was a lawmaker who as the story goes in kentucky it's partly lore but but also partly uh you know largely based in the truth that that he was going through the city of berea and uh, there was a train station there and he sees a black woman and a white woman hugging on a train platform um and uh, this man charles day ultimately goes goes back to the legislature and introduces what's known as the day law um, and that was saying that we are going to segregate public and, uh, and private institutions. That there would be no interracial education. Um, if you were caught teaching a class uh, or teaching an interracial class, you would be fined, you know, a couple hundred dollars a day. I was speaking with a faculty member at Berea a couple of years ago, and they said this is a truly pernicious law. And effectively, what that does is it, it, it formalizes the, the segregated system that we saw on through the Jim Crow era up until Brown v. Board of Education, sort of reintroduced this idea of educational equity um, or just um, equality generally into into American life.
0: Yeah, you had this this weird paradox that you point out in your piece that there wouldn't be public education in Louisiana if not for the work of some of these sort of pioneers that you talk about, like Mary Bryce, yes. and yet at a certain point in the late 19th and early 20th to mid 20th centuries, black students are being shut out of the system, the very system that black leaders had been responsible for constructing.
1: Yes, and 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 that is, it, it is always the sort of paradox of American life that if this, this system, it was created to, to service people who were shut out of a system that were subsequently, again, shut out of that system. And, and so the, this project of the last half century plus has really been to, to sort of reclaim some of that uh, educational equality to sort of work towards the promise of reconstruction, which was, you know, in, in a lot of ways, full citizenship for the entire American population. Again, I, I kind of go back to the founders and the importance that they placed on education as, as one of the roots of citizenship. You know, in order to be a good citizen, Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, Benjamin Rush, right, they all pointed towards towards education as, as this sort of central cog. And so to, to remove full access, to remove equitable access to education it's in a lot of ways to remove equitable access to citizenship in the ways that the founders um, visualized.
0: Yeah, and in, in, in your final paragraph of this piece, you say, the history of the South illustrates that efforts to splinter or deny education on the basis of race will inevitably diminish even those who lead those efforts. And so tell me more about that. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes, but you know, I think about Mississippi, for example. It's unmistakably true that Mississippi struggles to this day are deeply rooted in its racism, and the victims of that racism are obviously the most important. But the perpetrators and their progeny now live in a state that is, as one Republican legislator once told me, is a developing country that you know is propped up into American life through federal aid or something like that. He said it in a more colorful Mississippi way that I did than I can say, but you know, essentially, to anybody's eyes down there. It's a state that is struggling and so say more about what you meant by that that statement that you know it's not just the the victims who are wronged by this
1: yeah yeah so effectively right the policies that are designed to keep people impoverished the policies that are designed to keep people uneducated it doesn't all only target those intended populations if you kind of consider that some of the grandfather clause kind of back to Jim Crow some of the grandfather clauses some of the um, poll taxes, it didn't only affect um, the Black population, it largely affected the population. Black population. But in some cases, poor whites were, were wrapped up in that. And it's when, you know, you started to see in the, the 1930s, the the 1940s, the sort of Southern Tenant Farmers Union, right? These, these organizing groups, uh, the sort of coalitions of folks who were banding together because they were facing the same systems of oppression. But also, um, even even those sort of larger classes, because if we think of, uh, or the, the more um, affluent classes, because if we think of education as a public good, as something that benefits everyone, right? We all benefit from a more educated population, Um, especially as I was mentioning, right? It's the founders understood it. If you have a, a more refined population is a more educated population because that is a population of, of better citizens right they're able to more critically think about think about ideas think through policies that could enhance the lives of of their citizens so by trying to work to keep one group down and subjugate one group you are in essence barring yourself blocking yourself from greater prosperity as well
0: well amen to that well send us home on a on some kind of hopeful note here so <laughs> in in writing this piece obviously i mean we're we're heading towards, a huge milestone in, what would it be now? How many years after Brown versus Board of Education? Oh goodness,
1: 1954, so
0: 70 years. 70 years post-Brown. What are you most hopeful about? You've written a lot about education, and, and we on this podcast talk a lot about doom and gloom in the system. Like, What have you seen out there that gives you some hope for the
1: future? You know, I, I think, especially in the last couple of years, um, I think that we've seen a, a renewed emphasis on the idea of of education as as a public good. Um, I, I, I'm thinking in particular about some of the institutions that have historically been underfunded. I, I write about a lot about HBCUs. Um, we've seen donations going towards the institutions. We've seen um, kind of in addition to to my book, um, there was the big Forbes report that examined the uh, you know incredible underfunding of the institutions just since the 1980s. The federal government recently sent letters to the states that have been underfunding their historically black colleges. So I think that emphasis and understanding of the ways that um, that history and that underfunding um, in the past does not only live in the past, but also influences our present, and that it is our responsibility to work towards to address that um, it is really one of the, the legacies of Brown, right? That, that we are working to address this, this past inequality that still lives with us today. And I think the more that we can continue to work towards addressing those vestiges of segregation and discrimination in our education systems, not only higher ed, but K through 12, I think the better off we will be.
0: Well, on that, uh, Adam, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Remember to go out there and rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be right back in a few days.